following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. You know the story. A couple of guys out hunting, and they're hunting bear. They see a grizzly off in the distance, and they begin to unload their rifles, and nothing happens. And the bear gets a little closer, and it seems a little stirred up, so they pull out their pistols. They unload every bullet that they've got, and all they've done is angered this bear. They drop their weapons, and they start to run, and they go right into a tree, and and this tree basically, hopefully, is their salvation. They begin to climb the tree, and they begin to see, as the bear hits the base of the tree, that that was a bad idea. And one of the hunters, just out of absolute despair, says, Oh Lord, please make this a Christian bear! And they look down, and they see the bear, and it's kneeling by the tree saying, Lord, thank you for this food that you provided. There you go. That's unbearable, isn't it? (laughs) Kind of a hairy situation. (laughs) Prayer is really difficult to teach on because most of us really struggle with it. Prayer, it, it intimidates us. And when we meet someone who prays more than we do, we feel guilty. And yet, it's our Heavenly Father who wants us to pray. And so much so that Jesus clarifies it in our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why don't we pray? There are biblical reasons for it. It would be maybe we're trying to have a conversation with someone we don't know. Uh, We may have a faulty view of prayer that you always have to fold your hands, bow your head, close your eyes, must be in church, etc. Maybe we're under spiritual attack, and that's true. There is great spiritual warfare that occurs in prayer We may be focused on getting stuff instead of communicating, conversation, relationship with our Heavenly Father. Uh, We don't pray many times because things are going great in our lives, and we only pray when it's an emergency, right? There's a lot of reasons why you could add to that, and why there are reasons you don't pray, but all those reasons are overshadowed when God begins to answer prayer and you see it specifically. In fact, when you see God answer and engage with you over prayer, it's such an incredible encouragement. Gene and I have memorial prayers. I think I've shared this with you multiple times, but one of them, which was the most personal, was a time we needed a car. It was desperate. I had a 74 exploding Pinto. She had a 75 rabbit, which was just really a dog of a car, and it was dying, and we desperately needed a car. Now, we were paid very poorly as a youth pastor, and so at that particular time, we couldn't buy a car, we couldn't lease a car, we couldn't steal a car, okay? So, all of that, and so almost in desperation, and I mean this sincerely, in little faith on my part, I looked at Jean, and I said, honey, we need to pray that God would give us a car. So three days later, I don't know, sometime in there, I walk by, and of course you know me, I'm being sarcastic, and I look at Gene and I go, honey, what are you praying for? You know, I'm praying for Mercedes, you know, and what are you praying for? She gets really serious, 
And she says, I want a station wagon, but not a big one. And there were all kinds of reasons she gave me after saying that. And it was actually very logical. It was very appropriate. And it really fit our current ministry and our life at that particular point. So about a week to two later, I'm studying uh, seminary classes late at night. She's already in bed. She's pregnant. She's having a miserable time in her pregnancy, so she's already asleep. And I get a phone call from a friend, and he starts telling me a story. And he goes, you know, we got this car, and I've been putting it on this lot, and then I put it on this lot, and then I put it on this lot. Every time I put it on a lot, I get one of two things. I get a ticket that I have to pay because I put it on a lot, or I get a nasty, snarky note that says, don't put your car on my lot. So he says, I think, you know, after doing this for now two months, that the Lord is leading me to give this car away, and I want to give it to you. And by the way, direct quote, I'm not making this up, he said, it's a station wagon, but not a big one. (laughs) I literally, on the phone, first time ever have in my life, fell backwards in my chair. I hit the floor, hit my head, and I'm like, I don't even know how to respond. I walk into Jean, who is sleeping in bed. I'm waking her up. She's miserable. And I said, honey, honey, God just gave us a car. Incredible. Have you ever had things like that? Where the Lord just made it very clear that he was in charge, that he knew every detail and specifically answered your prayer? What is prayer? Prayer is conversation with God. Prayer is communing with him. He speaks to us through His Word. We speak to Him in prayer, in relationship. In and through prayer, we adore Him. We bear our souls in contrite confession. We give exuberant thanks for grateful hearts to Him. We offer our requests to Him. And it's from a pure heart that's directed at God, consistent with the will of the Holy Spirit. On the basis of what Jesus Christ has done, for the glory of God, we pray. But it is in relationship. It is conversation. You say, Chris, why should I pray? Come on. God already knows what's going on. God is already going to do what He wills to do. He is sovereign. It's preordained. Why pray? Now, people do ask that. And God is sovereign. But there is a real sense in which prayer is effective Because it is the ordained means that God uses to carry out His will. In fact, it's called the doctrine of concurrence. Maybe you've not heard about it, but it is God is working out His sovereign will. He also is answering your prayers concurrently. Isn't that amazing? God is inclined to answer your prayers when you call upon Him fervently and repeatedly and in pure motives. But Christ created you, and in spite of your sinful rebellion, in spite of my sinful rebellion, you know what He did? He redeemed most of you in this room. He created you, you rebelled against Him, yet He still redeemed you to Himself. And that very God who gave you life, who gave you new life, says, I want you to pray. So learn to pray. And that's what he's going to teach us now in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're new with us, we're working our way verse by verse through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And verse by verse, drawing out what God meant by what God said, not making the Bible say what we want. We only want to know what he says. So open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6 and take that outline that you were given and follow along with us and picture what's happening here. Christ is testing 
this great crowd. He's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful slope. It's acoustically sound. And he's giving this incredible sermon. He's got his disciples around him. And he's giving this sermon and he's addressing what they know. If you're a Jew and you're in the first century, you know about giving. You know about praying and you know about fasting. Those are three things that you did in the first century and Christ is now going to use those three disciplines of the religious life, of Jewish life, and he's going to show them you can do those three things in a very heart-driven way before the Lord that pleases Him, and you can do those three things in a way that's showy, that you're actually trying to boast, you're trying to actually show people how holy you are, how religious you are, and He's comparing those two, the external people, and He's talking about the genuine people. Are you with me? He's using those three things in Matthew chapter 6, as we open up this chapter, to demonstrate who's real and who's not, who's being a pretend believer and who's a genuine believer. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 4, right? And it was about giving, and he said there's some people who give to impress everyone, and they do it in a way that is noticeable, and there are other people who say, I'm giving to the Heavenly Father that I love, and I just want to give secretly, and because He has done so much for me. This week, in verses 5 through 8, He's going to expose those who pray for show, phony prayer. And he's going to compare that to those who are praying in relationship to their Heavenly Father from a new heart, conversationally. Not using big words like God, okay? But actually saying and talking to their Heavenly Father. So I want you to read aloud with me verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 from your outline so we can read it together and understand this phony prayer is for show and real prayer is to the father we know are you getting that that's our thesis for this morning so let's look at it read aloud exuberantly starting at verse five everyone together here we go when you pray you are not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who seeks what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, For your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. So, incredible, great pastor, incredible exegete, amazing intellect, James Montgomery Boyce, one of my heroes, he's with the Lord now, he says this, this quote is in your outline because I want you to have it because it is almost the summary of everything I want to say today. So look at it. Quote, none of us can comprehend exactly how prayer functions with the infinite mind and plan of God. The Calvinistic view emphasizes God's sovereignty and in its extreme application holds that God will work according to His perfect will regardless of the way men or women pray, even whether they pray or not. Prayer is nothing more than tuning in to God's will. At the opposite extreme, the Arminian view holds that God's Actions pertaining to us are determined 
largely on the basis of our prayers. So, on the one hand, prayer is simply as a way of lining up with God regarding what He has already determined to do. On the other hand, it is beseeching God to do what He otherwise would not do. Scripture, are you ready for this? Supports what? Both of these views and holds them as it were in tension. The Bible is unequivocal about God's absolute sovereignty, but the Bible is equally unequivocal in regard to and declaring that within His sovereignty, God calls on His people to beseech Him in prayer, to implore His help in guidance, provision, protection, mercy, forgiveness, and countless other needs. It is neither required nor possible to fathom the divine working that makes prayer effective, that makes it work. God simply commands us to obey the principles of prayer that His Word gives, end quote. Can you say amen to that? That's profound. And our Lord's teaching today, out of the Sermon on the Mount, actually contains these same principles. So stay with me. Point number one in your outline, the routine practice of prayer. The routine practice. Look at how he starts at verse 5. He begins with three words. What are those three words? Say it with me. When you pray. Jesus assumes that we pray. Okay, are you with me? Uh, he pray. Don't allow the sovereignty of God to keep you from prayer. You know, the sovereignty of God. God already knows what's going to happen, so why should I pray? Any more than you allow the sovereignty of God to keep you from evangelism. God's got to save them, so why should I even share the gospel? Right? Or keep you from obedience. Well, God's going to do whatever He wants to do, whether I obey or not, so why obey? Listen, friends, the moment you do that, you are out of God's will. God is absolutely sovereign, and you, each one of you here today, is absolutely what? Responsible. That's the tension of Scripture. You can't escape it. In fact, it is so clear, I wanted to give you two verses where it says one verse right after the other. Philippians chapter 2, 11 and 12. Look at it in your outline. My beloved, just as you have always obeyed, what's he say? Be responsible. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God's sovereign. For it is God who is at work in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. Right there, back to back, no explanation. God is at work in you. He is sovereign. He's going to do what he wants to do. And you are responsible to work it out. Can I hear an amen? Is Jesus God or man? Answer? There you go. Those tensions are all throughout Scripture. Is it God that saves you? Or are you responsible to respond to Him? The answer is yes. That's the teaching of Scripture. God is bigger than you. Are you good with that? And we're not going to comprehend these tensions, but they are there. And prayer means God is sovereign, but you are responsible to participate in prayer, to Basically, seek His plan, seek His will, seek your joy as you seek to come in harmony with His will. Get this term, in relationship. You're talking to a person, the person of God the Father. And Jesus begins with verse 5, when you pray, make certain you pray. Now as the Lord describes the problem surrounding prayer in these verses, and then next week He's going to give us the example of prayer in next week verses, the assumption is you will pray. And the assumption of Scripture is you're going to pray a lot. 
So much so, what's he say in 1 Thessalonians 5.17? Pray what? Without ceasing. So as I'm even dialoguing with somebody, I'm praying. I'm asking the Lord. As I'm working in the free spaces, I'm praying. Ephesians 6.18 even adds, at all times, in the Spirit. But how? Well, God's going to go on to say, don't pray to people. Don't pray for people's hearing. Don't pray to show off. Pray to your Father. Pray to your Father through the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is absolutely essential that you know that the opportunity for you to pray to the Father is because of the death of God the Son. What's he say in chapter uh, 10, uh, 19 of Hebrews? It says, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the what? The blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Look up here. You cannot approach God apart from Jesus Christ. Period. That's not my word. That's God's word. That's what he says. Without Christ, God has to turn his face away from us. God is perfect. God is absolutely holy. And if you and we are not made holy and perfect in our standing before Him because of the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us when we're saved, you cannot come to God in prayer and be heard. Do you understand this? You have to believe that Christ, the God-man, suffered and died on the cross, bore all the sin that separates you from God, rose from the dead. When you put your faith in Him, He can cover you with His righteousness, and now you have access. Now God can hear you. Not because of what you've done, but because what? What Christ did. Tracking? That's so essential that you understand that your access to God... Is there a lot of prayer going on in this world? There is. But unless it's in Christ, it's not heard by God. It's not heard. It's just empty words. You can only have access to God through Jesus Christ. You say, what about the prayer of salvation? If it's the prayer of salvation, I guarantee you, He's already worked in your heart, drawn you to Himself, so you can respond to Him. So He's already enabled you to respond to Him. So you must believe that Christ died for your sin. That He rose from the dead. And when you're saved, you'll follow Him, you'll want to obey Him, and wanting to obey Him means you will want to pray. Every Christian in this room wants to pray. You want to. And we always pray to the Father, always only through the Son, and Ephesians 2.18 adds, in the Holy Spirit. Look what he says in 2.18. He says, for through Him, Christ, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. There's the triune God. And the Greek word access there, access in one Spirit, means actually literally introducing, an introduction. The Holy Spirit introduces you to God. He makes the way. He makes it possible. He makes God real to us while at the same time instructing us in how we should pray. And that would be, again, Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the what? Spirit. Listen, prayers that are acceptable to God are done for His glory and in the Spirit. Singing that is acceptable to God that you just sang, were you singing to the Lord or were you just uttering words? When you pray, are you just uttering words or are you actually talking to your Father? You're saying, Chris, that's convicting to me. Yeah, it's convicting to me too. Because I can go through the motions just like you. Anybody want to say amen to that? We do it unthinkingly. And remember, we're talking about a person. 
How would you like it if somebody treated you as if you weren't a person and they just talked at you? That's what God is saying is offensive to him. Talk to him as a person. Sing to him in true worship. To him. All our singing, all our serving, all our giving, all our worship, teaching, discipling, living for Christ is to be in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God because of what Christ has done, and that includes our praying. So back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus assumes, verse 5, we will pray. When you pray to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit, all the time, over everything. You know, sometimes I think that young Christians pray better than older Christians. These young Christians, they go and they start praying, they go, Lord, it's a rotten day today! You know, they're just very honest, very open, and they're talking to their Heavenly Father. And sometimes we train ourselves, Thou art the God of the thee, thy, thy, thee, thy, thy, thy. And we're all of a sudden, we're like, we forgot who we're talking to. We're just talking. Remember who you're talking to. That He desires relationship. That the basis of what a Christian is, is relationship with our Heavenly Father. So, our Lord now wants to teach us in this passage how not to pray title of the sermon, title of this particular passage. So number two on your outline, prayer is not for public posturing. It's not for public posturing. Like the prophets before him, Jesus, his style was to expose what was wrong and then to teach what is right. So he exposes here what is wrong, and this is how he instructs us on prayer, by giving us the bad way and then the right way. Okay, so verse five, when you pray, Continue on in verse 5 now. You are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, God is exposing our tendency to pray to ourselves, to pray, to like to pray, to feel good about ourselves, to utter it, you know, we're, we're about to eat a meal, utter a prayer, instead of talking to Him in relationship. And in the first century, the scribes and the Pharisees had taken to a whole new level where they're wanting to perform their prayers and impress everybody about how righteous they were. They wanted to not merely be observed, they wanted to be applauded. They wanted people going, oh, your prayers, oh, they're so good. God's not impressed by that. In fact, they wanted to not just merely instruct onlookers, they wanted to impress them. They wanted them to be impressed. And hypocrites, they don't love God, they don't love prayer, they love to be seen. And God is saying, no, it's not about being seen, it's not a performance, it's not what people think about you, it's you're in a relationship with God the Father. Talk to Him. Talk to Him. Now from last week, you know the term hypocrite was used in the Greek language to talk about those masks, you know, with a big smiley face or the big unhappy face, and that was to project something that they weren't, right? They're, they're hiding who they are, and that's what hypocrisy is. You're putting a mask on, actually showing something that you are not. And that's what's happening here with these hypocrites. They're basically presenting themselves as something that they're not, and they're praying to attract attention and to gain men's applause and, and wow, reverence, etc. And so Jesus says, verse 5, look what he says, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Now when hearing this, it's tempting to take issue with their posture, standing, and the place where these hypocrites were praying. Those aren't really the issues. Let me explain. They're standing when they pray, and they're praying indoors and outdoors, 
in a synagogue and in the street corners, verse 5 says, in religious and secular places. But the posture is not the issue. The Bible actually talks about standing, sitting, kneeling, prostrate, face down. Christ modeled most of those postures, so the posture is not the issue. And then sadly, when it talks about street corners here, the hypocrites literally, when it says street corners, it talks about the broad avenues. Now in every city, ancient as well as today, there are narrow streets and there are what? Broad avenues, you know, arterials, whatever. And what these hypocrites did is they went to the busy streets so there's more people that can see them pray. The hypocrites loved to pray and they wanted to have the largest audience possible. Now, is there anything wrong with praying at a big intersection? Yes or no? No. But if you happen to be there at the time of prayer and, you know, in your own thing, you're, you're praying now, that's fine. But when your heart is wrong is when you plan to be there so everybody notices you. That's the problem. So they could see you. And again, most of the Jews at this time in the first century, like modern day Muslims, prayed at particular times during the day. Which, by the way, is not a bad thing. Set your clock, pray at a certain time during the day, train yourself to pray certain things at certain times. That's not a problem. That's a good thing to remind yourself to pray. The problem wasn't the posture, and the problem wasn't the place. It was their hearts, and that their focus was on people, not God. Are you getting it? And they got their reward. Their reward was the praise of men. They wanted earth's approval, not heaven's approval. But when you pray, Christian, you want heaven's approval. You, you want this, because Christ here is exposing motive. He's asking, what's your focus in prayer? What's your motive in prayer? Well, if it's relationship because you love the Lord, that's the great motive. All right, the sin of the heart that's being exposed here is pride. It's pride. They desire to exalt themselves before their fellow Jews, and their prayers were directed at themselves and others, not to God the Father, through the vehicle of the work of the Son, and in the power of the Spirit. It wasn't that way. Phony prayer is for show, and true prayer, real prayer, is to the Father that you know. So number three in your outline, prayer is for private interaction. For private interaction. But it says, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father, okay, child to father, who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The secret is to, <laughs> of understanding this passage is secret. You want to be praying knowing that God knows your heart. You want to be praying knowing that God knows your heart, and he's the only one you've got to basically be right with. In other words, your only eyes that you're concerned about is not other people who are watching you. It's that you're concerned about the secret seeing, universally present God. You know, God is not opposed to public prayer. He's not. In fact, Christ and men of God through centuries have prayed publicly, but Christ just warned us of our human tendency to pray to gain the praise of others. And the solution was to go away so the others don't see you. So go into your inner room. Inner room here is a storeroom or a closet where others don't go and can see you. The point is, you don't have to go into a closet so that nobody sees you. So nobody has to be impressed or unimpressed with your prayers. Go to the least sanctified place of your house, he says. Go where food and tools and other supplies were stored, where privacy is guaranteed. Why? And pray. 
Now, that does not guarantee your heart is right. It doesn't, going away and hiding yourself. But it is a safe solution against pride and hypocrisy, is it not? When you hide, there's no pride in that, and there's no hypocrisy in that. You're not putting on a show for others when you pray with the broccoli and the potatoes in your, you know, your pantry, okay? Again, the place, the closet is not the issue, it's the heart attitude. Don't show off when you pray, is the point. And since most of us are show-offs by nature, a quiet and secluded spot will help us maintain that kind of intimate relationship without the danger of hypocrisy or showing off. Now, it's essential that you find a time and a place where you can pray unobserved, undistracted, and unheard by people in order to allow you to be totally consumed with your God. Again, based on this passage, Martin Luther would say, prayer should be brief, frequent, and intense. And I like that. Brevity of prayer can naturally lead to frequency of prayer, and more frequent prayers might lead to more fervent prayers, and that's what you want. Some Christians, and we all do this, we pray for prayer's sake, right? We pray to feel good, less guilty. But it's far better to pray when you just want to talk to your Heavenly Father, when you mean what you say. Namely, you're focused on God and not on you or on the fact that you're praying. Look what he says in verse 5. We should be praying privately. Go to the closet, shut the door, lock the door. Shut out everything else that you know, you get distracted by so you can concentrate and pray to your Father in relationship, in friendship, in communication. Do whatever you got to do to get your attention away from yourself and on to Him and Him alone. Can I say this? And you hopefully you understand it. God is a jealous God. Why did He save you? For Himself. And he desires a relationship with those he purchased at that incredible price of the death of his son. He desires salvation is relationship, right? It's knowing him. It's knowing Christ. And the most important secret is God sees right into your heart. That's the secret. The secret things that God's aware of is the privacy of your own heart. And those are the secrets about which he is supremely concerned about, about which only he can know with certainty. You know what? He knows our hearts so well, He knows them better than we know them ourselves. Can we not fake ourselves out with our own motives? Yes? Sure. We can lie to ourselves, deceive ourselves, but God won't. And when God is genuinely the audience of your prayer, we will have the reward that only He can give. And Jesus gives no idea what that is. He doesn't say how you're going to be rewarded. We talked about reward last week, about a greater capacity to honor and glorify Him. But He rewards this faithful, intimate, relational prayer. Stop using these, stop using thou's, and start talking to your Heavenly Father. Tell Him what's going on in your life. Worship Him, praise Him, thank Him, confess your sins, but talk to Him about what's really hampering you and struggling with. Let him know this is the first step to greater sanctification, greater intimacy, and Christ-pleasing prayer. The Lord's going to repay. And now those who pray insincerely and they pray hypocritically, they're going to get the world's reward. People are going to acknowledge, wow, godly guy, look at those thousand these. Man, that's fantastic. And those who pray sincerely and humbly will receive God's reward. But again, another warning, number four, watch out, prayer is not for pointless verbiage. 
not for pointless verbiage. Verse 7, and when you're praying, do not use what? Meaningless what? Repetition, as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Again, another aspect here is your content. What are you praying? Uh, is it filled with meaningless words? Their prayers had no substance. Uh, for prayer to be acceptable to God, prayers must be expressions of genuine relationship, genuine worship, genuine heartfelt requests in relationship, not mere zealous words where you're facing a wailing wall and mooking up and down like this. That is not pleasing to Him. Repeating over and over and over. The practice of meaningless repetition was very common among the pagan religions of the day back then, and still, it's in practice today. Still, even in some brands of Christianity. Back in verse 7, look at that word. Circle it. Use meaningless repetition. Circle that. That's one word in the Greek. And what it means is, write it down, idle, thoughtless chatter. Emphasis on the thoughtless. And you know what the Greek word, use meaningless repetition, is also onomapoetic. Don't write that down. What that means is, it is a word in the Greek that sounds like it means and means what it sounds. And the Greek word is batalageo. And so he's saying, don't pray like bada 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 bada, mimicking the sounds of meaningless jabber. Let me relate that to something that's very contemporary. Almost all expression of modern day tongues today is meaningless repetition of sounds. Meaningless. It is unpleasing to the Lord. It is not what the New Testament teaches that tongues is. New Testament taught that tongues is the proclamation of the gospel in a foreign language that's even exactly the accent of that language by someone who didn't know that language. It's the gospel being proclaimed. It was never, ever meaningless banter. Ever. Those who use repetitious prayers today are not necessarily hypocrites. Understand the Pharisees used a great deal of repetition in their public displays of piety, but many regular Jews who are listening to Jesus on that slope on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee used repetition in their private prayers. Now get this. Why do people do this? And by the way, why do you do it? Here's why. Are you ready? Write it down. Because it's easy and demands little concentration. That's why we do it. For many people back then and today, prayer is simply a matter of required religious ceremony which allowed them to be entirely indifferent to its content. And I'm telling you, this stabs me in the heart. I can't tell you the number of times I've prayed at a meal and I've said the exact same thing because my head's not engaged, my heart's not engaged. Is anybody there with me? That's not what he wants. Little concentration, it's easy. And though this problem did not always involve hypocrisy, it always involves this meaningless repetition, a wrong heart. Always involves that. Proud hypocrites tried to use prayer to glorify themselves, whereas those who use meaningless repetition were simply indifferent to real relationship, real communion, real intimacy with God the Father. The Jews practiced uh, this process, and they got it from the Gentiles who believed that the value of prayer was the amount of prayer. So the more you prayed, the more God was pleased. Does that happen in marriage sometimes? 
Some marriages make the same mistake. Talk a lot and he'll hear you. No. Verse 7. They suppose that they will be heard for their what? Many words. They prayed to a pagan god. They believed that they had aroused that god. They had to badger him into listening and answering. And you see this through the context of Scripture. The prophets of Baal, they were screaming and yelling for hours for their gods to answer. Same thing over and over again. In the New Testament, we even see they railed and shouted as they were set against Paul. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they did that for two hours, Acts 19 tells us. Over and over and over again. That's just repetition. Many Buddhists, they take little uh, wheels and they put written prayers in them and they spin it around and they believe that every time it spins around, it then ascends to their God. Catholics will light candles. Why? In the belief that their requests will continue to ascend to God as long as the candle is lit. Rosaries were used to count off the number of necessary repeated prayers of Hail Marys and Our Fathers. Your mind doesn't have to be engaged. Your heart's not engaged. You just keep rattling them off. You know, shockingly, I learned that this week, that the rosary itself came to Catholicism from Buddhism by way of Spanish Muslims in the Middle Ages. How do you like that? Listen, before we you know, start thinking about ourselves as being above all this, Mindless praying through a prayer book, reading through a liturgy, and all modern tongues are all meaningless repetition. Meaningless. You're in a relationship with the God of the universe that he purchased by the death of his son. He wants to talk to you, and he wants you to talk to him. In relationship. Prayer, phony prayer, is for show, and real prayer is to the Father you know. I know you're thinking meaningless repetition is bad, and you're thinking, well, I'm glad I don't do it, but how many of us in here have not been guilty of repeating some prayer, meal after meal, prayer opportunity after prayer opportunity, with little or no thought of what we're saying to the one to whom we're supposed to be speaking to? Prayer that is thoughtless, Prayer that is indifferent is offensive to God. It should be offensive to us. I understand Jesus is not um, forbidding repetition of genuine requests. I mean, we see examples of this in the New Testament. Jesus praises the, the midnight visit of the neighbor and praises the persistent prayer. The widow who repeatedly goes to the judge is praised for her persistence. Jesus himself even repeated the prayer, Lord, let this cup pass from me in his prayer before the cross. Uh, asking sincere repeated requests is not in view here. It's the dishonest, and here's the key word, unthinking repetition of needs or praise that is just mechanical. I sometimes find myself on Sunday, you know, uttering the words that we're singing in praise, but my heart is not engaged. Anybody with me? God hates the mindless, indifference, recital of spiritual-sounding incantations and formulas. He wants our hearts, friends. And not only must our heart be right before God, for him to hear our prayer, but our minds. Thoughtless prayer is almost as offensive to God as heartless prayer. Thoughtless prayer. Which is why Jesus ends this paragraph with number five. Prayer is for personal perspective de dependence. 
perceptive dependence. He says, perceptively, verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You keep rolling this up. He already knows. God doesn't have to be badgered. God doesn't have to be cajoled. All right? Our Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Martin Luther said it this way, By our praying, we're instructing ourselves more than we are Him. Prayer is sharing the needs, the burdens, and the hunger of our hearts before a Heavenly Father to understand that He knows what you need, but He wants you to ask Him. He wants to hear us. He wants to commune with us more than you could ever want to commune with Him. He wants to commune with us more than you could ever want to commune with Him. How do you know? Because His love for us is greater than our love for Him. Prayer is giving God the opportunity to manifest His power and majesty and love and providence and relationship. John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. To pray rightly is to pray with a devoted heart and a pure motives. It is to pray with the single attention on God rather than others, rather on prayer. It's just to focus on Him. And it's to pray with sincere confidence that our Heavenly Father both hears and answers every single request made to Him in faith. He always repays our sincere devotion with a gracious response. And if our request is sincere but it's not according to His will, He will answer in a far better way than we could ever want or expect. He will always answer like a delighted father to an expectant child. In contrast to the scribes and Pharisees, they're verbose and rambling, and meaningless prayers of those hypocrites, Jesus now is instructing us. And you know what's so cool? He not only wants you to know how not to pray, and how to pray, but now He's going to show you. He's going to give you a guide. A guide that walks through. It's never to be prayed and wrote. It is a guide for you. The disciples' prayer, you say, Chris, where is it? I need to know this guide. Come back next week. We'll walk it through as something that then is a guide for us to know what to pray and how to pray to our Heavenly Father in sincerity from heart to heart. Heart to heart. That's the plea today. That we leave here more desirous that our hearts would be in tune with His hearts and we would be genuine and sincere before our Heavenly Father who sees everything going on in your life. He knows every offense. He knows every hardship you bear. He knows all the health issues you're struggling with. He knows all the relational conflicts. He knows all the struggle you have over your children and your grandchildren. He knows all that pain and suffering that dealing with your parents. He knows all of that. He loves you and wants you to tell him so. What you're battling with. Be the new born-again Christian who doesn't know how to pray formally and just talk to him. Would you? Heart to heart. In contrast to all of that, let's be here next week and learn the incredible guide to prayer. Now listen, if you want a great book on prayer, I I want to recommend one. It's called Enjoy Your Prayer Life. That's a great title, and it actually is a book that describes it. Enjoy Your Prayer Life by Michael Reeves. Maybe we'll get it at our book table someday, but Enjoy Your Prayer Life Recommended by Jim Evans. I'm going to be reading it this week. But understand, let's conclude. Letter A, pray in Jesus' name. Pray in Jesus' name. You know what that means, right? It's not an incantation. 
It's not a magical formula that you, you kind of lay over your prayers, so now my prayers are good. In Jesus' name. What you're saying in Jesus' name is according to the incredible character of God, according to the incredible work of Jesus Christ on your behalf that enabled you to pray, right? He provided that by his own death and resurrection, enabled you to have basically open entrance into your Father's presence, right? Not because of you, but because of what Christ did. And it's always according to his word. You want to be in God's will, then it's always according to his word, When you say in Jesus' name, you're saying, according to your word, according to your character, I want my prayers to be in line with your will, which is found in your word. That's Jesus' name. Let's be praying that way, always with that mindful. Talking to Him honestly, sincerely, relationally. You know, honor Him as the great God that He is. I'm not talking about being irreverent. I'm just saying, tell Him what's going on but do so in his name. Got it? Letter B. Pray always guided by the truth of God's word. What that means is requests are according to God's will, which is only found in God's word. It means that in Jesus' name, according to his character, not your deservedness, it's asking in faith, believing in the willingness and power of God to answer your prayers that he is capable. Is he capable of answering them? Yeah, any of them. And I know some of the prayers that you've been praying are painful. You're waiting for that son or daughter to repent, to come along, to be what God wants, you know, that that they would be saved and born again. Wait patiently. Wait patiently for God to answer. Persist until the answer we seek is granted. Do so in Jesus' name. Do so for His glory. Practice praying short prayers all the time, possibly at specific times. Listen, some of you who are struggling with prayer, start setting your clock. To remind yourself that you will pray certain ways a certain time. But listen, that's not a bad thing. It's just a reminder to pray. Because phony prayer is for show, but real prayer is to the Father that you know. Letter C. Prayer does not work for those not in Christ. Uh, there's no way to get around this. Jesus said, on the way, the truth, and the life, no one will come to the Father except through me. If you're not in Christ, you're not going to heaven. You're not right with God. I don't care what you're praying and whose name you're praying. It's not getting through until you're in Christ. I didn't say that. God said it. What's he say in Psalm 66, 18? If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will what? It's not going to hear me. The Lord will not listen to those still under the judgment of sin. The bummer is you are a sinner and you can't take care of your sin. That's why God came. You cannot work your way to heaven. God had to come and make you right. And he did by punishing his perfect son, Jesus Christ, for your sin on the cross, pouring out all his wrath for your sin upon himself. And if you submit your life to Christ, then Christ can exchange your sin that falls on him and cover you in his righteousness. That's what gives you entrance into his presence. Not because of what you did, but because Christ did for you by covering you in his righteousness. Now everything you've ever done has been forgiven past, present, and future. We still struggle and agonize with sin, but we know it's been covered by the cross. And since he's risen from the dead, Christ will send his spirit to transform you from the inside out, give you the power and desire to pursue him, and then your prayers can be heard and your prayers can be answered as you commune and are in a relationship with your heavenly Father. But it all starts by faith, by exchanging all that you are for all that he is. 
Okay, by faith and repentance, it doesn't mean you live any way you like now. You have actually been changed so that God causes you to want to follow Him. And if He's drawing you today, would you respond? There are people in this room that are still under sin. They're still under the guilt of it, the burden of it, the trauma of it, the slavery of it, the deadness of it, the evil of your sin. Get rid of it and get right with Christ. Get right with your Heavenly Father. Surrender your life to Christ. Because that's the only way you'll ever know him now and experience abundant life. And the only way you'll ever be in eternal life with him forever in heaven is through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenge. We pray that you would be pleased by how we respond. We want to respond with worship. And that means that we offer our lives. It's, It's not just our ideas or our thoughts, but a real relationship with the living God And we pray, Father, that you might accomplish that for your glory. We love you and we thank you for being the God who provided that relationship. That at any moment, in any situation, we can be right in your presence. And pouring out our hearts, heart to heart, keep us from the the distance and the formality and the the rote prayers at mealtimes and help us to engage with you heart to heart, person to person and bring you glory for what you do. Thank you that you do answer prayer and that we get to be involved in that process. And we pray that you might do your work today. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.